Pull it together, Joseph. Um, if you were here with us last week, Dwayne, our senior pastor, started us on a brand new series titled Making and Keeping Commitments. And he couldn't be here this week. <laughs> he said that sounded really tough. He's got some stuff that came up. Uh, his schedule is just slammed. No, Dwayne is on a study week this week. Uh, he actually went to Arizona to escape daylight savings. And uh, so he's hanging out down there. Uh, he's, he's wrapping up that series and he's actually uh, planning ahead uh, for the next series uh, to lead us into the summer. And so uh, we'll pray for him. Uh, in the meantime, we're gonna take a detour as a congregation uh, from that series, Making Keeping Commitments. We'll pick up with that next week. This week, we're gonna talk about something uh, called Desperate Times. And uh, as I was praying for the congregation this week, praying for this message, uh, the thought occurred to me that many of us have been through desperate times. Many of us are currently going through desperate times, uh, both as a church and as individuals. Uh, one thing was very clear though, all of us, I think, will go through desperate times at some point or another. And I wanna talk to, uh, a little bit, I wanna look at a passage of scripture where we get uh, an insight about what does it look like in the middle of desperate, painful, difficult times to respond not from a place of fear, but a place of faith. So we're gonna look at a passage together today. We're gonna to see two very different lives, two very different people united by a very common, desperate need for relationship with Jesus. And so uh, before we dive into that, let me, let me pray for us. We'll get started. Father, we thank you that your spirit is here with us right now. Lord, thank you for the joy and the opportunity that we get to celebrate a life dedicated to you. Your covenant promise of faith, hope, and love that's poured out over Dan and poured out over all of us, Lord, when we respond in faith to who you are and what you have done. God, we pray that this morning your spirit would be at work in our lives. God, you would invite us, you would challenge us, you would encourage us, you would reveal to us more and more about who you are and who we are called to be in light of you. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for this time. Be our teacher this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, speaking of desperate times, uh, desperate situations, acts of desperation, uh, let me explain to you how I convinced my wife to actually go on a date with me, uh, my wife, Sheila, because it took an absolute act of desperation back in college. Sheila and I met back in college through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It's a campus ministry some of you are familiar with. And I was a sophomore leading a freshman guy's Bible study at the time. And I loved these guys. I loved getting to pray with them, meet with them, study God's word with them every single week and, and get involved in their lives too. Well, one week, this guy, Will, comes uh, into Bible study. And he says, guys, a miracle has happened. A miracle has happened. I have a girlfriend. And we're like, whoa, God does do miracles. God, with, all God, with God, all things are possible. That's incredible, Will. Tell us about her. Tell us about this girl that you're dating. Guys, her name is Sheila. <laughs> yeah, her name is Sheila, and, uh, which is my wife. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, she's incredible. She's amazing. And uh, you guys have got to meet her. Hey, Joseph, you know, you've been mentoring me. You're kind of Bible study leader. Would you, would you meet Sheila? I kind of want to you know, get the thumbs up approval from you. That really messed me. Yeah, you're going to regret that, Will. But yeah, sure, why not? I would love to meet her. So later that week, we had a big InterVarsity event. I think it was a big dinner. And uh, I ended up talking to Sheila at this thing for about two hours and walked away completely enamored with her, completely enamored, crushing hard on this girl. And so we are walking back to our dorms and I'm walking with Will and he's like, hey, Joseph, I saw you talking to Sheila. I saw you guys talking for a long time, actually. What, what'd you think? What was your, you know, what's your take on her? Oh, Will. Will, this girl's incredible. She's, she's absolutely amazing. Oh, I know, right? I'm glad, I'm glad you think so. No, no, Will, man, hey, you don't get it. Like she, she's smart, she's beautiful, she's hilarious. She's like the total package. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I'm kind of, I'm kind of dating her. No, no, Will, you, you don't get it. Will, this girl's amazing. She's stunning. She's incredible. She's totally out of your league. <laughs> you get like insight into college Joseph psyche a little bit. As he looks at me, he's like, he's not sure whether to be offended or complimented. He's like, thank you. There's a little bit of both in there. He's like, what are you, what are you trying to get at, Joseph? And I was like, hey, he, here's the deal. No disrespect. I, I will be praying for you and your relationship. I hope you guys have a long, flourishing, Christ-centered relationship. I hope it goes great for you. And I want you to know if it doesn't work out, I'm making a move. I'm making a move. He's like, you can't do that. There's a guy code at work here. I'm like, no, 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 nothing sinister, nothing malicious. Just know that I'm kind of calling dibs in the future. And so this became a very long running joke between Will and myself. I was a man of my word did not do anything to undermine their relationship. They ended up dating for a while. Um, she was totally out of his league though, and so it eventually did end. So fast forward a couple of years later. I know, I'm just full of myself. Anyway, <laughs> fast forward a couple of years later, uh, my senior year. Uh, Sheila, in the middle, uh, in this time, Sheila and I have bumped into each other. We're acquaintances, we're friends, we're around each other. But there's really never been an opportunity for me to pursue asking her out. It never really made sense until my senior year and things got desperate. The situation got very serious. You see, I was a senior, I'm about to graduate, about to move on, and then something incredible happened, something shocking, Sheila was single. <laughs> Sheila was very surprisingly single. I was very unsurprisingly, unshockingly single as well. And so the stars had kind of aligned, had kind of come together, there was an opportunity here. Now, not only this, school is starting back our senior year, big intervarsity gathering of worship, prayer that night, there's gonna be a huge dance party afterwards, everyone's really excited about this. I knew that two of my roommates senior year were planning on asking Sheila out. I had the inside loop. And I knew that if I didn't do something crazy and desperate right then, I might miss out on a relationship that would change my life. So I did what I could think, uh, the only thing I could think of, probably the craziest, most desperate thing any white boy college student can do, I asked Sheila to go dancing with me. Now, I didn't just say, hey, would you like to dance with me? Because I knew this had to be a big deal. I had to be right away, it had to be immediate. So before I had time to chicken out, before I had time to think about this too much, uh, I knew I needed to ask her out. So that night at this large university gathering, a few hundred college students, as it's actually my responsibility to get, get the night started and kick it off. So I'm moving through the aisle, kind of moving forward, getting ready to start the night. Uh, everyone's talking, the music's about to start playing. I see Sheila across the room. And I know there's this dance party and I know it's now or never. And so from across the room, several hundred people around us, hey, Sheila, Sheila, hey, are you going to the dance party later tonight? Kind of shouting, we can like barely hear each other. She's like, dance, yeah, yeah, I am. And so I do the only thing that I can think of in that moment. I go. <laughs> exactly like that. Several hundred eyes watching us. Uh, and I don't know if it was out of pity. I don't know if because there was an audience. Guys, she said yes. She said yes. She said, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, let's go dancing. Um, just so you know, like that's not in any dating handbooks anywhere, right? That's not, you're gonna see that in a dating 101 course, college, uh, high school and college guys. Like don't use that as the way you're gonna ask girls out in the future. It shouldn't work. Hitch would not give that advice. <laughs> and for some ridiculous, crazy reason, it worked. It worked and the rest is history. Now here's the thing about desperate times, desperate situations. They actually help us to zero in with a laser-like focus on the thing that actually really matters to us. It's very easy to float through life and kind of care about 99% of these other things, but when things get desperate, when the situations get stressful and more intense, it helps us focus on what really matters. Now, there's obviously situations way more intense, way more desperate than asking someone out on a date, although 
college students, high school students might disagree with you on that. Um, because that feels very desperate, feels very intense to us. But we as human beings are not designed to be in desperate situations for very long. Uh, the emotional toll, the, the relational toll, the, even the physical stress and strain of that begins to wear us out. And so as human beings, we have some defense mechanisms. We have some things that we do to help us work through desperate times. Uh, the first of these is when we're physically required to be in a very stressful, very desperate situation, we can start to mentally, emotionally check out. Maybe you've had a job before that was stressful beyond belief. Uh, it was absolutely wearing you down. And so you get home and you find yourself just eating a little bit more than you normally would. You find yourself binge watching TV in ways that you normally uh, wouldn't do it. You find yourself running to things even that you know aren't healthy, but you can't seem to help it, whether that's alcohol, too many video games, whatever that may be. We find ourselves mentally checking out. Second thing we do in the middle of desperate times is we often just hit the eject button. We say, boop, I'm done. That church is too stressful. It's too dysfunctional. These people are too messy. They're too sinful. I'm out of here. I'm gone. Can't handle being around this anymore. The marriage is too painful. It's too stressful, too frustrating. I can't handle this desperate time, this desperate situation. So we do something desperate and we hit the eject button and we're out. We're done. Now, there's a third thing. You've probably heard the phrase, desperate times call for... Yeah, desperate measures. Okay, you guys are somewhat awake today. Yeah, desperate measures, uh, desperate times call for desperate measures. And uh, there's things called acts of desperation that we do. Now, sometimes these can be healthy. They can kind of put us out there in ways that are good for us. Some ways they can be really unhealthy. Have you ever sent an email that you instantly regretted? Yeah, I know I have. Have you ever made a phone call that you're like, oh, I was not in a good place to have that conversation right now or confronted someone on something? sent a text message you instantly regretted, things like that. Sometimes we want to exert control over a situation. We're so fearful, we're so, we're so concerned about what's taking place that we just want to do something even if we know it's not healthy. That is sometimes an act of desperation for us. Now on the other side of it, sometimes acts of desperation can be really beautiful things. When they're motivated not out of fear and a sense of losing control, but rather out of a place of faith, Acts of desperation can be really beautiful, formative things. So we're going to look at a passage of scripture together today. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. You can click there on your phone. Uh, by the way, if you just don't have a Bible, don't own one, we have free Bibles in the lobby. Uh, free to a good home. We would love for you to take one of those home today. I'm just happy to, to give those away. But we're going to look at Luke uh, chapter 8, verse 40. And again, we're going to look at how two very, very, very different people respond in the middle of desperate times. Respond, in fact, with a beautiful act of faith. So this is Luke chapter 8, verse 40. And uh, this is God's word to us. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Now, just quick context, kind of texture for the passage here. Jesus has returned. Well, where has he returned to? Well, Jesus is back in Galilee. And this is in the middle of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus is kind of a rock star in Galilee. He has made a huge difference in people's lives. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. He's cared for the poor, the sick, the hungry. He has numerous followers there. So large crowds are gathering to see what Jesus will do next. Many of these people are curious. They're entertained. Maybe their friends are bringing them along, and they're just kind of bumping into Jesus, and they're curious to see what he might do next. But one person in particular comes with a very desperate situation, a very desperate need. Verse 41. Then a man named Jairus a ruler of the synagogue came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, his little girl, a girl of about 12, was dying. 
Scripture tells us a little bit about Jairus, just in this simple phrase, that Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. You know, if you're familiar with ancient Israel, kind of familiar with their practice of worship, there was the temple, right? There's the main temple that was in Jerusalem. And then there were all of these smaller uh, synagogues, places of worship and spiritual study and prayer, kind of out in the surrounding communities. Kind of think of there's the corporate headquarters, and then there's like all these franchises. So every city and township in the surrounding area had these synagogues as places of worship and prayer. Now, they were not just places, they were not just the spiritual centers for these communities, they were also the social centers for these communities, the economic centers for these communities, the political centers for these communities, anything pertinent that matter to that community would take place in and around the synagogue. So when scripture says Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue, you know what it's saying? Jairus is kind of a big deal. He is kind of a big deal. This guy is a mover and a shaker. He is at the top of the social spectrum. He has influence and power and everyone is watching him. Now, scripture doesn't say this explicitly. Almost every commentator, almost everyone who has studied ancient Israel and studied these synagogues uh, would say that Jairus was also almost certainly a Pharisee. Almost certainly a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were a sect of Judaism. They were very strong legalists. They wanted to follow God's word to the letter. Very punctilious people. It's a good scrabble word. 25,000 points, punctilious. So they wanted to dot every I and cross every T. They wanted to do it right. And the Pharisees, you might remember, have not always gotten along with Jesus. In fact, they have had very barbed, vitriolic, painful encounters, very critical encounters with each other so far. One of the main concerns the Pharisees has was that Jesus uh, has, uh, the common people have responded so overwhelmingly positive to Jesus. And they're very concerned that Jesus himself has responded very positively to the common people. Shouldn't he want to be with the religious elite like us? Why does he care about these sinners, about these women? Why does he care about these outcasts? So they've had many barbed, heated discussions so far. Not very friendly. So here's Jairus, mover and a shaker, almost certainly a Pharisee. And what does he do? Everyone wants to see what this ruling elder of this community is going to do in his relationship with Jesus. And he comes forward, hundreds if not thousands of eyes are watching, and he throws himself in the dirt, in the muck and the dirt at Jesus' feet. And he begs Jesus, he begs him to enter into his home and heal his little girl. Why? Why would Jairus do this? He's desperate. It's a really simple answer. He's desperate. His little girl is dying. His only daughter, his whole world is falling apart. And he's desperate. And here he is at the feet of Jesus. Now, I want to ask us this question. What, what would make us desperate? What would make you desperate? Your answer is probably kind of similar to what my answer would be, that's my family. You got a picture here. These are my, these are my two ladies. There's Sheila. I uh, won her over with my great dance moves. Yeah, yeah. I always wanted to do that in a sermon anyway. Uh, there's, uh, there's Marin. We call her Mare Bear. Uh, she is uh, uh, just empirical fact. She's the cutest baby on the planet. Um, I, I, you think I'm biased, but I'm not. You know, Gallup did a poll. She is the cutest baby on the planet. And these are my two ladies. My wife, my daughter, and if anything were to threaten them, not, not just physically threaten, because I think that's usually where our minds first go, but if anything were to threaten them, period, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, physically, any of those things, I would become very desperate very quickly. I would respond with laser-like focus on this situation and what matters most. That is the beauty of desperate times. They, they call for desperate measures. We don't always respond to them in the most healthy way possible. Desperation helps us to cut through all the junk of life 
and focus on what really matters most. And we see that happening with Jairus. We see his focus is laser-like. Now, there's a couple ways that Jairus does not approach Jesus that we can learn from. The first way that Jairus does not approach Jesus is that he does not come to Jesus bartering and negotiating and saying, look, I'm kind of a big deal, Jesus. Uh, I've done a lot of great things for the church and for the synagogue and for the people here. I'm kind of wealthy, I'm influential. He doesn't come to Jesus presenting a resume. He comes empty-handed with a heart full of trust and a heart full of desperate need. Do you ever think God should be thankful you're on his side? Do you ever think God should be grateful you're on his team? I have thought that before. I'm kind of ashamed to say that. It's not something pastors often say, we want to say, but I've thought that before. Look at all the good stuff I do, God. Look at the good person I am. Look at how I love my wife and I love my daughter. Look at how I serve and I sacrifice. Look at what a good person I am. Aren't you glad I'm on your team, God? I would be. Don't you kind of owe me one, God? Shouldn't you do me a solid? Shouldn't you do me a favor here? Look at all this huge history that I bring to you of all the good things I've done. You owe me this, God. Jairus doesn't say that. Jairus doesn't do that. He does not come to Jesus saying, look how important and powerful and wonderful I am. He says, look at how important and powerful and wonderful you are, Jesus. I need you, I need you, I need you. I need you to save my daughter. Empty hands, heart full of trust. How often do we approach our relationship with God as a give and take barter system saying, well, if I do this thing, then you should give me this thing, God. How often do we respond in bitterness when we don't get our way? I know I do. I know that I do. There's an invitation to repent here. To say, God, this isn't about what I can do. It's about what you have done in my life. This isn't about what I can prove or give to you. This is about what I need from you. It's an invitation to repent. Now, there's another side of this. Jairus, in the middle of a crowd of several hundred, maybe thousands, does not care what people around him think. He throws himself in the mud and the dirt and the muck of a Galilean town at the feet of Jesus, begging him to come. There are almost certainly people there judging him for his need, judging him for the way he's approached Jesus, judging him for his weakness, the way he's representing the town, the way he's representing these people, the way he is falling to his knees before this rabbi, judging him. Now, do we build our lives around what other people think? Do we build our relationship often around what other people may think? Now, here's the deal. I, I know there are legitimately like three or four of you who do not give a rip what other people think. Uh, you can tune out for the next few minutes if you haven't already. You can take a five, go get coffee, go to the bathroom. I'm gonna talk to the rest of us, the 99% of us that need to hear about this thing of people pleasing because I build my life and my relation with God around what other people think of me. We are master manipulators of managing our, our image and managing what people think of us. Malcolm Gladwell is a social scientist, author. Many of you maybe have heard of him. He talks about the mastery principle. <clears throat> Excuse me. He talks about the mastery principle where if you dedicate 10,000 hours, 10,000 hours to an activity, you will achieve expertise and mastery of it, right? So if you dedicate 10,000 hours to carpentry, for instance, uh, you will become a master carpenter, assuming you have all your limbs and fingers and everything afterwards. If you dedicate your 10,000 hours to public speaking, you will be a master public speaker. You will be an expert public speaker. Y'all, we need to hear this. 
There are folks in here, myself included, we are triple and quadruple masters of image management. We dedicate hours upon hours, tens of thousands of hours to managing people's perceptions of us. In the clothes we wear, the way we present ourselves publicly, uh, personally, and also on social media, the, concerned about the homes we, uh, we own, the cars we drive, we agonize over what other people think of us. And you know what we're doing there when we do that? We are just using people. We are just using people to prop ourselves up. We're saying, I am so insecure about me that I need you to like me so that I can like me. That's idolatry. We are lifting up the opinions of man over the opinions of God. We're putting other people on a pedestal that only God deserves to be on. We're bowing down at the altar of public opinion. There's an invitation to repent. There's an invitation to repent. I had a mentor in college who told me that, uh, explained to me and recognized, this is a huge tendency of mine, by the way. You've heard me preach on this before, to care way too much about what people think. A mentor in college told me, Joseph, we are commanded by God to love and serve one another, and we are prohibited from worshiping one another. Hear that. We are commanded to love and serve one another. We are prohibited from worshiping the people around us. That's manipulation. That's idolatry. There's an invitation to repent here. When you are desperate, what drives you in your relationship with God? Is it a resume? Is it saying, look at what I have to offer you, God? Is it being concerned about what other people might think? Because here's the deal. There are folks here who are withering. Their marriages are withering. Their finances are withering. Their families are withering. Their jobs are withering. And no one knows. You haven't said a word. You haven't opened up to anyone. You're so concerned about managing public opinion. You are withering. You're withering and everyone thinks everything is just fine. Jairus didn't do that. Jairus could have walked away from this situation with his pride intact and his daughter dead. His pride would have been unscathed and his daughter would be in the ground. So here he is, desperate, desperate times call for desperate measures. He's bowing at the feet of Jesus. He's repentant. He's coming to him saying, I need you, I need you. Every hour I need you, Jesus. And Jesus responds. And that's the good news, that when we approach God with empty hands but hearts full of trust, he responds. And Jesus says, let's go. Let's go see your daughter. Let's go see your little girl. So Jairus and these crowds begin to move. And this is what happens next. This is verse 42. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. Everyone is bumping into and crowding around Jesus, wanting to see what happens next. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, 12 long years, but no one could heal her. 12 years this woman has been bleeding. 12 years she suffered from a debilitating illness. Do you guys remember where you were at 12 years ago, 2005? Do you remember what you were doing 12, uh, 2005? What was happening 12 years ago? I, can, I have some reminders, help us out here. Got a few images. Uh, there we go. Uh, YouTube launched in 2005. I don't know if there's a single day that goes by now where I'm not watching cat videos on YouTube. Mainly sent from Sheila's family, by the way. But, uh, you know, watching cat videos on YouTube. There used to be a time when people weren't watching cat videos on YouTube. Crazy. Uh, Brad and Jennifer were still together. What? That feels like an age ago. Kelly Clarkson had not one but two songs in the top ten that year. Behind These Hazel Eyes and Since You've Been Gone, both of which helped me get through some brutal high school breakups. Thank you, Casey. Appreciate that. The Xbox 360 was released to much rejoicing from video game enthusiasts. Uh, Star Wars Episode Three was, was released to much uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth from Star Wars fans. Uh, what happened 12 years ago? Where were you at 12 years ago? 
What were you doing 12 years ago? Some of you don't have to think that and don't have to think about that hard. You weren't even alive 12 years ago. 12 years is a long time. Now think about from that point 12 years ago. I want you to think about everything you've done these past 12 years for you personally. Think about every job you've had. Think about every relationship you've started, maybe ended, every move you've gone through, every community you've been a part of, maybe every uh, churches you've been a part of. Think about everything that you have done these past 12 years. Now I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that you did every bit of that under the cloud of a debilitating illness. Debilitating physical illness. Now, some of you don't have to imagine very hard. And I, I am not making light of that here today. Some of you have gone through the last 12 years facing a debilitating illness, and you've responded with faith, you've responded with hope, you've responded with love in the middle of all of that, and you're heroes of the faith that you have suffered and followed Jesus in the middle of that, so I'm not making light of that at all. 12 years, though, under a cloud. I want us all to kind of put ourselves in that mindset. 12 years under the cloud of a debilitating illness. Now, let's add to that a little bit. Imagine you're doing this completely alone. You see, because this woman had a bleeding disease, because of that, she was considered ceremonially unclean due to the religious law of the day. She, she would have had to announce to people when she was nearby, if they got within a certain distance, unclean, unclean, don't come near me. You need to stay away. Because if she were to touch them, they would become unclean and have to go through a lengthy ritual cleansing process. She wouldn't have been allowed to participate in worship and prayer publicly because she was unclean. If she had children, she wouldn't be able to hold her children. Can you imagine not holding your children for 12 years? I don't know if I can go 12 seconds without holding my daughter. An agonizing place to be. 12 years. Now, Jairus is at the feet of Jesus because he has come face to face with the potential of death, right? His daughter is on the verge of death. This woman has come to Jesus. Uh, she, we're not sure if she's on the verge of death necessarily, but we do know that over the past 12 years, something in her has certainly died. Something in her has died these past 12 years, and she is desperate. In fact, she's not just physically, spiritually, socially desperate. She's financially desperate. Uh, I was looking up what, uh, actually, uh, if you read uh, Mark chapter 5, this is like a parallel passage to this one. And uh, I have a quick verse. Uh, Dustin, if you could throw that out. Thank you. It says this, as a parallel passage from a different angle, gives a little bit more detail. This woman had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had and yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. This woman has pursued a cure for 12 long years. It's cost her everything. And in fact, she got worse. I, went, I wanted to see like kind of what her treatments would have been like uh, for someone in this condition. <clears throat> and uh, this is one I found from the Talmud, which is a, it's a Jewish sacred writing. It's kind of outside of scripture, extra uh, scripture writings, uh, outside of scripture. That Here's a treatment plan that doctors of this day would have written for her for someone from this condition. Take the gum of Alexandria. It's a sticky tree substance. Take the gum of Alexandria about the weight of a small silver coin. Also take alum, crocus, and sand. Let them be mixed together and given in wine to the woman who has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take of Persian onions three and boil them in wine and give her to drink while saying, arise from thy flux. There's some homebrew elixirs and remedies going on here. Even some command words, some incantation. If this does not cure her, things get serious. Set her in a place where two ways meet, like a crossroads. Let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind her and frighten her while saying, arise from thy flux. <laughs> it's quite a prescription. 
She doesn't have the hiccups, guys. She's sick. She's bleeding. And yet this was from the Talmud. This is from the sacred Jewish religious writings. This was considered like top tier kind of stuff that she would have almost certainly would have pursued. And she, then she would have pursued other means. Who knows what indignity she was subjected to? Who knows how, what she, it cost her in pursuit of a cure? She has suffered at the hands of man. And in fact, she just got worse. In fact, Luke, the author of the passage we're reading together, Luke 8, anyone remember what Luke's profession was? He's a physician. He was a doctor. So when Luke says no one could heal her, he knows exactly what he's talking about. This is an expert opinion on the matter. So here's this woman desperately reaching out to Jesus, desperately approaching him in faith from a place of um, uh, isolation and physical pain and uh, uh, spiritual uh, withering. And this is what happens next. She, the woman, came up behind him and touched the edge of Jesus' cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. Immediately she was healed. Who touched me? Jesus asked. And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Jesus, you're kind of in the middle of a mosh pit right now. You know that, right? There's going to be some physical contact going on. People are bumping into you left and right. There's elbows flying everywhere. There's hundreds of people surrounding you wanting to see what's going to happen next. And Jesus says, no, no, no. No, someone, someone reached out intentionally. Someone didn't just bump into me. Someone reached out in faith, desperate faith, needing something here. So Jesus says, who touched me? Continuing verse 46, Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out for me. I know that a miracle has happened. Then the woman, this poor woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Let's think about the risk this woman is taking. She spent 12 years in isolation, 12 years suffering, and she does something crazy as a desperate act of faith. She goes to a crowded place. Not only does she go to a crowded place, she works her way through the crowd, risking risking the ire and the anger and the frustration of everyone she's touching. By the way, making them unclean in the process forces her way through the crowd. Not only does she do that, she goes to the teacher, the man of God, and she touches his cloak. Guess what? He's unclean now. Except he's not. Except it doesn't work that way. Except in that moment, she is instantly healed. Now, when I was reading this, I kind of been wondering, and maybe you're wondering too, Jesus, why'd you call her out? I mean, why put the spotlight on her? This woman's embarrassed. She's alone. Like, she just wants to be healed. She works. She's already done something incredibly brave, working her way through this crowd to reach out in faith and touch you. Why couldn't you just let her go on her way? You want to know the answer? I, I, think, I think I know why. And here's the deal. Because the God of the universe cares so, so, so much about our immediate physical needs. He really, truly does. I'm not making light of that. He cares about our immediate physical suffering. And... He cares so much more about our relational suffering. He cares so much about our immediate needs and he cares so much about bringing healing to our relationships. And this woman, he calls her out in front of everyone and he has her testify to what God has done and he responds in a beautiful way that lets her know that she has been restored into a right relationship with God and with one another. And he calls her daughter, daughter, daughter. Your faith has made you well. You are healed. It's a word of relationship. It's a word of family. It's a word of belonging. You have been made well, daughter. 
I think that this woman approached Jesus with beautiful, desperate faith, and I think she wanted far too little of him. Do we ever want far too little of God? Do we, I don't know if maybe you relate to this. Do you, have you ever approached God like it's a cosmic vending machine? Like if I punch in the right code, maybe put in a, a faith buck or two, then I might get something back that will meet me in my immediate pressing, pressing physical needs, emotional needs. Maybe you've never done that. I know the question I have to ask myself all the time is do I want God or do I just want God's stuff? Do I want God or do I want God's stuff? This woman wants far too little from God. She expects far too little. She thinks she deserves far too little. When we approach God, he cares about our physical needs. He knows us. He loves us. He knows the number of hairs on our head. It's more for some of us than others. Yeah, he knows what we need. He knows everything about us. And he cares so much more about our relational restoration and healing. This woman wants far too little. Do we expect and want far too little from God? That's a question that's asked here. And Jesus responds to her with tenderness and love and invitation. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Now, while this is going on, what about the other daughter? I'm sure the whole time Jairus is like, hey, this is cute. This is sweet. Like, oh, that's great. Hey, what, what about my little girl? I kind of had dibs, right? I was kind of next in line. Like, let's get going, Jesus. Let's see what happens next. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus the synagogue ruler, the important, very important man. And they said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother him. It's over. He's too late. Have you ever felt like God was too late in your life? Have you ever felt like I, I had God, I had these needs, I had this situation, everything was falling apart. Where were you? You were supposed to be there. You were supposed to make things right. And you're too late. You're too late. I don't know if you felt that way. I have felt that way. Hear Jesus' response. Hear Jesus' response to the most painful, sorrowful news Jairus has probably ever received in his life. Verse 50, hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. Don't be afraid, just believe. I, I, I personally believe that God has some of you here today just to hear that phrase right there. Do not be afraid, just believe. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Are we gonna respond from a place of fear or are we gonna respond from a place of faith? Because Jesus is not done yet. This story is not over. And if you feel like you've been waiting for God to show up, the story is not over there is something good coming, something that transcends even the immediate pain and sorrow of loss, something eternal is coming. Verse 51, when Jesus arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. <clears throat> Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. Jesus isn't a fool here, right? When he says that she's asleep, he knows that she's dead. Everyone, they laugh at him because they are so certain she is dead. Now there's a whole sermon wrapped up in this word asleep, that there's, yes, pain and death in this moment are real. This is a real thing. And yet there will be an awakening. There will be a chance for someone to wake up and be healed from this. 
Stop wailing. She's not dead, but asleep. There's still hope, even in the darkest of situations, and even when they laugh. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, another word of relationship, another word of belonging. My child, get up, rise up. And her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat, and her parents were astonished. There's some of us here today that already have something dead in our lives. Maybe, maybe you're like, yeah, I'm still in the marriage, but it's been dead for years. It's on life support. It's, it's actually past life support. Some of us maybe feel like our faith, yeah, it's dead. It's a dead husk of what it once was. This relationship, this sense of purpose, this job, whatever it may be, there's this dead thing in my life. Here's the good news, y'all. We worship a God who loves to bring dead things back to life. It is not too late. It's not too late. Jesus says, rise up, my child, rise up. Come back to life. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news that we see, not just in this story, but it's the good news we see played out on the cross. It's the good news, the fact that Jesus took all of the suffering, all of the death that we deserved as a sinless sacrifice, was sent to the grave. Three days later, he rose up. The voice of God said, my child, rise up. And he conquered death. And that invitation extends to every single one of us. My child, rise up. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not too late. It's not too late with God. Now, what, what, do, we, what do we do with this? And I, I kind of want to end with these thoughts, just end with this idea of what does this mean for us as a community, uh, as a faith community out in the community? And then what does this mean for us? We'll work our way back in. What does this mean for us personally? The question I was left asking is, what, what if we, as a church, as people, as a community who go through desperate times that call for desperate acts of faith, what if we were honest with the people around us about the desperate times and the desperate situations we are in? What if we were a light to other people going through desperate times? Because do we think just religious people, just people who go to church, go through desperate times? No. We know categorically that's false. We know that people in our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools are going through desperate times as well. What if we were, as a church, were a people that went to these people and said, you are not alone. You are not alone in the middle of this desperate situation. What if we are you, what if DCC was a you are not alone community? I don't know if you've ever tried to counsel someone in the middle of tremendous grief and pain and sorrow. There's not usually a quick, easy answer to that situation. Very often people don't even want a practical to-do list. They just want to hear they're not alone. That's the message that Jesus says to these people who have these desperate acts of faith. I am here, you are not alone. What if DCC was a you are not alone community in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces? What if we were people that just everywhere we went, there was a wake of life that went, where, uh, that went behind us everywhere we go with every relationship we enter into. Not one built on pretense and saying, we have it all together, come and be like us because we have uh, these polished, pristine exteriors. What if we said we are desperate in our need for Jesus? You, you might be desperate too. And there's a place you can belong here. There's a family, child, son, daughter, a family you can belong to here. What if... For us personally, I want to ask a question. Which of these figures in the story do you most personally relate to? Is it someone who wants to barter with God or maybe come to him and say, look at what I've accomplished or tempted to at least do that? Is it someone who wants to manage other people's perceptions of you and say, you know, as a husband and wife, you say to one another, just as long as people don't know we're going through this, 
we'll be fine. Maybe it's a call to repent and to turn towards God and to say, no, we are desperate in our need and we need to invite other people into this desperate situation. Maybe you're someone who's suffered in isolation for years and you want just far too little from God. You're waiting for this immediate need to be healed and God wants to bring you back into right relationship with himself and with others. Last question. What if you're like these people in this crowd? Yeah, you're kind of entertained or you're intrigued or maybe curious about what's going on with Jesus. Are you reaching out to Jesus or are you just bumping into him? Because there's only a few people in this story that see true life transformation take place. There are literally hundreds who bump into Jesus. And there's a handful who see transformation. This is the question I've been asking myself all week. Am I just bumping into Jesus or am I reaching out to him from a place of need and faith and trust? You would be surprised how remarkably easy it is for a pastor to spend a whole week just bumping into Jesus, to do things for Jesus, but not to do anything with Jesus. Remarkably easy. Maybe you as individuals can relate to that. You feel that in your family. You feel that I do these religious things. I do these good things and sure, but I'm not doing any of this with Jesus. Are you just bumping into Jesus? Or are you reaching out to him? There's an invitation here as we wind down. If for some of you, you have spent your whole lives bumping into Jesus, I want to invite you to reach out. I want to invite you to reach out in a, from a position of need and faith and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. Every hour, I need you in my life. Some of us have never said that. Some of us have never prayed that. Romans 10.9 says, what, you know, what does it take to be saved? What does it mean for us to be saved? It says that if we profess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. It's that simple. There's not an attendance check for church. <laughs> there's not a to-do list. There's, not, there's nothing like that. Do you profess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? We're gonna, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and invite the worship team back up front. We're gonna have a time of prayer and for some of you, this might be, uh, maybe something's touching a nerve or maybe the spirit of God is at work within you. And we're gonna have just a moment of silence and prayer. And I'm gonna pray a prayer that I invite some of you to pray with me and just to say, God, I need you and I trust you and I want to follow you. For some of you, that might be the first time you've prayed that. Uh, after the service, we'll have uh, elders and we'll have staff up front who would be delighted to talk with you in the middle of desperate times. To share, by the way, that we have gone through desperate times and are going through desperate times as well. I don't want anyone to leave this room with your pride intact and you're dying inside. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, <laughs> don't settle for just bumping into Jesus. There's an opportunity for us to reach out in faith. Let me, let me, uh, let's uh, just close our eyes take a moment of silence and then uh, I'll close this in prayer. Father, I believe that every single one of us needs you. We need you. We need you. Every hour we need you. I know that is true in my life. I know there was a moment in my life when I realized that for the very first time, how desperate my need really was for a savior. I pray for this congregation. I pray that we would be keenly aware of how desperate and fierce our need is for you this morning, tomorrow, the next day. Father, for those here who feel like they've spent their whole lives bumping into you, 
I pray, Lord, that they would reach out to you in faith. I pray that your spirit would give them the grace and the courage to do that, which they know they need to, that we need to. If you feel that this is an opportunity for you to reach out in faith, I just invite you to pray this with me to yourself. Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you to be my savior. I need you to be Lord of my life. I believe, I believe, I believe in my heart. God, you raised Jesus from the dead. I believe that you can do the same thing for my broken and dead life. Jesus, I need you. Save me. I pray for the rest of us here that there is an opportunity for us to be a you are not alone community, to be a people who say to one another, it's okay to be desperate, it's okay to do things, uh, to reach out in desperate faith to a loving and gracious God who receives us. I pray that we would have the courage to be that community and live as such a community here today, tomorrow, and the next day. Lord, give me that courage. As we respond in worship now, Father, I pray that we would respond wholeheartedly knowing that you love us, knowing that as we reach out to you, you reached out to us first. You loved us even while we were enemies, and yet you still loved us. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.